Ready? Born ready. Party people, you are tuning in to another episode of Where the Party At. I am your host, Saba Long. Thank you for rocking with us this week and every week. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome, welcome. We hope that you become a regular. We drop on Tuesdays, so every Tuesday, check it out. Let's jump right in. We got to start, of course, with what's happening in Atlanta politics. So housing, let's start with that. So at the State of the City address in April, uh, Mayor Andre Dickens announced something called a housing strike force, and they are dedicated to tackle Atlanta's very big affordable housing problem. So last week, Andre finally unveiled who is actually on that task force. And what's interesting is these are people in positions or organizations who should have already been meeting regularly to tackle housing affordability in Atlanta. So maybe the city just never put these folks all in the same room. I I don't know, but let me run down who's on here so you know. Uh, You got the head of the Atlanta Beltline, that's Clyde Higgins, the head of Invest Atlanta, Dr. Eloisa Clementich, the head of Atlanta Housing, you hear us talk about Atlanta Housing a lot, Eugene Jones, so those are those three people are all heads of organizations that are within the city that the city controls. Then you have the COO of the city, Lisa Gordon. She came in from Habitat for Humanity, so she understands this space. And then the mayor's senior advisor, Courtney English. That might be a name you remember from our Who Runs Atlanta series. He ran for council president. And then there might be some names and organizations you may not be as familiar with. Okay, on that list, you have APS Superintendent Lisa Herring. Atlanta Public Schools has a ton of property. So it is certainly, they have that. Plus, it's also in their best interest to make sure that families aren't moving around all the time trying to search for affordable housing. It's far more helpful if you have a kid that is able to stay in that same cluster, go to the same elementary school, then go to that middle school, and then go to that high school, and has a continuous education experience rather than hopping from one school district to another or from one side of town to another. All right, then you've got MARTA's interim uh, general manager, Holly Greenwood. Why MARTA? MARTA has something called transit-oriented developments or TODs. And this is where you might have seen MARTA building on top of train stations. And so they're building either on top of or next to train stations, mixed-use properties with housing, with uh, commercial space. So, and the reason why they're doing, why this is important to have MARTA in the conversation is because when you add up the cost of housing and the cost of transportation, for most families, that's the biggest chunk of their household budget. All right, next we've got on this list, Metro Atlanta Land Bank Executive Director, Christopher Norman. And then last, Atlanta Land Trust Executive Director, Amanda Rhine. And Amanda actually used to run 
the TOD program at MARTA. So about this task force, the city said, and I quote, together the strike force will identify viable public land, secure funding, and expedite regulatory processes for development of affordable housing. The name of the game is funding here. So speaking of, affordable housing advocacy folks called out the mayor for not adding any money to his fiscal year 2023 budget for the affordable housing trust fund. Now, I mentioned, I think in an episode or two ago, the city council right now is reviewing the mayor's proposed budget. The city budget for fiscal year 2023 starts July 1st of this year. So about this affordable housing trust fund, last year, the Atlanta city council, and remember the mayor was a council member at that time, he, they voted to add 1% of the general fund budget to an affordable housing trust fund. And then next year, so in 2023 slash 2024, they're going to increase it to 2%. So for this year, that means $7.3 million that the city is going to put into an affordable housing trust fund. But for whatever reason, the mayor didn't do it. And when he got called out, he said, you know, my bad. And what he said, and I quote here, we heard loud and clear the importance of devoting funding in our new budget to this cause. You don't have to twist my arm to do more with affordable housing. So I'm glad that he did it. I don't understand why he didn't do it in the first place. But I think um, a lot of Mayor Dickens' uh barometer for success is really going to be about what happens in housing in Atlanta. And if Atlanta is still a place where you can afford to raise a family, if you're not a millionaire. All right, next up, this is big news that the mayor announced uh, last week. Atlanta will bid to host the 2024 democratic national convention. <laughs> it's a big deal. So the last time we hosted the convention was in 1988, a long Damn. time ago. Yep. Very different city. <laughs> so I'm, I think there's a good chance that we get this. I'm not betting. I'm not, I'm not a betting person, but I think there's a good chance that Atlanta gets this. Why are, uh-oh, what you about to say, Keith? <laughs> I really hope we get it. Uh-oh. Why? I really do. <laughs> You're going to be out there protesting? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I, I feel like it would be great. So All right. I'm for it. All right. <laughs> so why I think, Keith, you will be able to go protest is because I think we're going to get this. So our former mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, she is the DNC's vice chair of civic engagement and voter protection. Atlanta has serious ties to the DNC even beyond Keisha. We've got mega donors here. We have politicians and political consultants who all have very strong connections to the Democratic National Party and the DNC. Um, and Atlanta is a major convention center, right? So we can handle the amount of people that are going to come to attend an event this big. Now, party conventions are a major affair. They require a lot of serious planning, a lot of logistics. Everything from transportation to hospitality to programming. So I'm curious to see what 
generally ends up happening in 2024 as it relates to Democrats. Uh, Keith, you will appreciate this, um, me mentioning this. Joe Biden will be 81 at the time of the convention. Damn. I just can't see an 81-year-old president running for re-election, uh, but we'll see what ends up happening. All right. <laughs> Who is voting in Georgia? This is the last full week of early voting for the May 24th primary. If you have not voted, please go vote. Here is a rundown of who's voting. This is courtesy of the Georgia Vote site. So I'm taping on Sunday. So by the time you hear this on Tuesday, there'll be a little bit more people than what I'm saying right now. But about 400,000 Georgians have already voted. Again, this is for the primary election. So we'll have more people vote in the general. But so far, nearly 60% of the folks who have voted are Republicans. Uh, now, there are some more contested races in the Republican primary, and Republicans generally take advantage of early voting. So we'll see what ends up happening on May 24th, the last day to vote. Um, this is some stats that always, you know, upset me to upset me because it always happens and it should not always be this way. Voters 65 and up make up nearly 60% of those who have already cast a ballot. Voters 18 and 29 are just 3% of the total number of people who have voted. Voters 30 to 39 are at about 4% of those who have voted. Like, come on, man. Like, 18 to 39 could completely change the trajectory of this city, of the state, of the country. And time and time again, we let voters 65 and older determine our futures. All right, Hispanic voter turnout is very low compared to the number of eligible Hispanic voters. That's at about 1%. Um, and what's interesting, about 44% of the folks who have already voted did not vote in the 2018 midterm primary election. Very interesting. So if you need to find out what's on your ballot, where to vote, all that information, we'll put this in the show notes. Uh, go to mvp.sos.ga.gov. That is the Secretary of State's My Voter page. All right, we're going to do some quick hits. I'll try to go through these a little bit faster. Uh, baby formula, I'm sure you all have heard about this. At least if you have babies, I'm sure you've heard about this. Uh, <laughs> nearly 85% of American newborns start off on formula. I thought that was, I'd never knew that. Uh, for black families... That number is in the low 70s. So why am I talking about baby formula? Because there is a nationwide shortage of baby formula, which is a huge problem. Last month, about 40% of the most popular baby formula brands were out of stock. And it's gotten even worse. So one of the main reasons uh, for this shortage is Abbott, which is uh, the largest manufacturer of baby formula in America, closed one of its plants. Uh, there was a bit of a recall. There, there was a recall due to some contamination. I think somehow not related to the contamination, but related to something with the formula. Like four babies died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, four babies died. From yeah. It. And it was only out of that one plant, but they shut them all down. Right. So that's what caused the right. whole issue. Right. And then you've had all these supply chain issues as well. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting about this is the fact that one plant 
shutting down can completely disrupt the market. And that three companies control 90% of the baby formula market. If you are, um, you know, a new parent that needs to feed their newborn and you can't, if you can't produce enough breast milk, right? That's one of the things people are like, oh, well, just breastfeed. One, not every woman is able to produce enough milk to breastfeed or the baby won't latch. Like there are mm-hmm. reasons why mothers don't breastfeed. No surprise, Republicans are blaming the shortage on Biden. Uh, very convenient. <laughs> you think about, you know, ma- you want your, you want all the moms to be mad at Biden. So that makes a lot of sense. All right. Uh, another quick hit. Uh, This is some Georgia news-ish. Dr. Lisa Cook, a Georgia native from Milledgeville and a Spelman grad, uh, she's the current professor at Michigan State University, was just appointed to be on the board of the Federal Reserve. She is the first black woman to serve on the national board. Her confirmation vote, this is interesting, was 51 of 50 in the Senate. Vice President Kamala Harris had to break the tie Obviously, that means not a single Republican voted for her. Um, and I was reading through, like, why aren't why didn't Republicans support her? Um, a number of them felt like she didn't have the chops, like she didn't have the credentials to be on the Fed. And, and, and the credentials in the sense of she's an economist and she does have multiple degrees and went to Ivy Leagues, but she is not trained in federal monetary policy. You can be an economist and not train in Fed policy. The other thing is they felt that it was a racial pick that Biden was just doing this. Oh, we got to meet these DEI goals and put minorities in positions. Uh, But they also felt the same way about Ketanji Brown Jackson, who is now the first black woman on the Supreme Court. Um, I I mentioned this in a previous episode. Another woman that Biden nominated, Sarah Bloom Raskin. uh, She is the wife of Congressman Jamie Raskin. Uh, they ended up having to pull her nomination because they didn't have enough votes, but this one they were able to get through. Uh, one thing I was reading about Dr. Cook, um, she they believe that she will push for mandatory diversity on corporate boards. Um, this was She was asked about this in 2020 uh, in support of a California law that imposes fines on companies that do not have diverse boards. If that is indeed something she does, I imagine there will be a ton of pushback uh, from folks saying you should not be mandating that a corporation, uh, you know, is required to hire or put a certain number of non-white people on a board. The number one thing on people's minds right now as it relates to Fed policy is inflation. 70% of Americans polled by Pew Research said inflation is, quote, a very big problem. We've talked about this a lot on the pod. And so I think for Dr. Cook, the question for her and the question for the entire Fed is what are y'all doing about inflation? Because, again, it is a very big problem. Speaking of very big problems, um, another day in America, another mass shooting. Um, This last one, Happened in Buffalo. It appears to be a hate crime. Uh, the shooter specifically targeted black people. Uh, I think, you know, we should all recognize America has a real problem with white supremacy. It's a fact. It's not race baiting to call that out and, and to say it. Uh, black people know it all too well. Um, and we have seen this time and time again throughout our history, ancient history, and the very recent past. 
Uh, we saw it when folks chanted, Jews will not replace us. Uh, we see it in conversations about what type of immigrants should be allowed into this country. So I'm not going to dwell on this one a lot, other than to say that expect gun violence uh, to be part of talking points in the Democratic, in the primary, uh, and in the runoff, and in the uh, general election. <clears throat> expect folks like Congresswoman Lucy McBath to talk about this shooting uh, and the need for sensible gun law reform. So in that same Pew poll that I, I referenced about inflation, that poll showed that gun violence is the number one concern for Democrats. Uh, some Penn State data from last year shows that there was a more than 30% increase in gun violence during the pandemic. And there was a 41% increase in handguns sold from the year before the pandemic and the first year of the pandemic. So I, I think there's obviously a correlation there. Um, the phrase that we all know too well, thoughts and prayers, y'all. Thoughts and prayers. All right, next, uh, let's talk about Roe. If you missed last week's episode, I really encourage you to check it out. I know it was super long, uh, but it is worth it, I promise. It was a conversation between, uh, I had three separate conversations. One was a constitutional law professor who actually clerked at the Supreme Court. Uh, another was uh, a pro-choice uh, woman, and the other was a uh, pro-life woman. It was great to hear their perspectives. So there was a vote last week in the Senate to codify Roe. Not surprising, it did not pass. Uh, Joe Manchin uh, voted against it, which has obviously pissed off Democrats. And so it begs the question, and this used to be the case in the past, uh, but I think it's becoming a harder and harder uh, conversation to have now. Can you be a Democrat and be against abortion? If that's like that's something that I'd be, I think would be great for a voice note. So if you've got a thought on that, send us a voice note. Can you be a Democrat and against abortion? What do you think? All right. So states like Louisiana are drafting bills. Now they drafted this one bill. It didn't end up passing, but there's going to be a watered down version of it for sure. Uh, it would have sent women seeking abortion and abortion providers, so the doctors who would perform that procedure, to prison. Uh, it would outlaw certain birth control methods, and it even would have made some aspects of in vitro fertilization illegal. Uh, again, that bill did not pass, but they are working on uh, a less uh, radical version of it. In Georgia, every single Republican candidate for the United States Senate, including Herschel Walker, who's the front runner, says they support an outright ban on abortion. And all four Republicans in Georgia running for lieutenant governor also support an outright ban on abortion. By the way, poll data shows that 68% of Georgians oppose overturning Roe v. Wade. Again, this is becoming an issue, like many, where the middle is lost in the conversation, where the majority of the people have one perspective but politicians and those in power are putting forth uh, laws and perspectives that do not match what the public is asking for and what the public agrees with. Okay, on unions, you all know that we love to give you an update on unions, so here we go. All right, so last week, uh, President Biden spoke at the IBEW convention. Uh, 
Biden has always been seen as a pro-union guy, although it's been a little bit harder for him to navigate that now that he's president, obviously. Uh, so take a listen to a clip of his comments. Age. Look, it's why we're strongly encouraging grantees who get infrastructure funding to use project labor agreements to ensure that workers building the major projects are well-trained, highly skilled, and have a voice on the work site. That's why I continue to call on Congress to fully and finally pass the PRO Act, which makes, which makes it easier for workers to organize a union. I'm not just saying it is to be pro-union, I'm saying this because I'm pro-American. Look, when Congress passed the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, it didn't just say we should allow unions. Everybody forgot this for a long time. What it said is, we, the federal government, should encourage unions and collective bargaining. That's what it said. There was a reason for that. Let's be clear for our Republican friends. You can't say you're working, you're for working people and vote against the PRO Act. It's not consistent. Look, you all know why this matters. Union members get higher wages, better benefits and health insurance, paid leave, protections against discrimination and harassment, and safer and healthier workplaces. But there's another reason. Workers join unions to gain power. That's what it's about. The only way to match power is with power. It's the only way it can be done. You can't count on the good graces of major corporations to decide they're going to help. You can't count on the good graces of corporations to help. I'm sure the heads of Amazon, Apple, Starbucks, and a bunch of these other companies that are trying to push back union efforts were not happy to hear that. All right, so let me update you on what's going on with some of those companies I just mentioned. Amazon. So Chris Smalls, the black guy who successfully led the unionization of the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, he was invited to the White House to meet President Biden, and he also spoke at a Senate committee hearing. And this, I want to give him props for coming off as like his true, authentic self. Like This dude showed up in a do-rag and a snapback and was like, I'm Chris Smalls, I'm here. And he answered their questions. Um, and he clapped back at Senator Lindsey Graham, who defended Amazon, and he said, you know, like, you know, he felt Lindsey Graham was basically saying, you don't understand what the company's dealing with. So, meanwhile, Amazon fired some of the management at that exact warehouse where Small successfully unionized. In a statement, Amazon said, and I quote, over the last several weeks, we've spent time evaluating aspects of the operations and leaderships at JFK 8, that's the name of that warehouse, and as a result, have made some management changes. So they're not saying it's because of the unionization effort, but it's kind of implied that it's because of the unionization effort. Now, Amazon's CEO compensation package last year was $214 million. Almost all of it is in shares, so it's not like he just got, you know, a stack of money. Um, a couple of investor advisory firms have actually encouraged Amazon, Amazon shareholders to vote against what they call unreasonable compensation packages. And Apple, 
workers at three Apple stores have begun the effort to unionize, including one in Cumberland Mall and Cobb County. We talked about that. Now, meanwhile, Apple has hired the same law firm that handled Amazon's efforts to squash unions at its warehouses. Apple has also circulated talking points to its retail managers, saying that unionization could lead to less time off, amongst other things. The CEO of Apple's compensation package last year was $98 million. Again, some of this was in stock options. All right, and now Starbucks. Uh, when we last talked about this, there were 40 stars, or 40 stores rather, that successfully unionized. That number is now 70. So there is at least one Starbucks store in 37 of the 50 United States that is attempting to unionize. That's pretty remarkable. According to More Perfect, a media outlet that's tracking this national labor movement that we're seeing across the country, over 20 Starbucks union leaders have been fired from Starbucks. Uh, the National Labor Review Board, you've heard me talk about them, uh, which is a federal organization. They say Starbucks has violated more than 200 provisions in the National Labor Relations Act. And the NLRB has also filed a lawsuit against Starbucks saying it unlawfully fired seven employees at a store in Memphis. Uh, they were leading an effort to unionize there. So, again, that's why you heard Biden say what he said uh, and about pushing Congress to pass the PRO Act. So one quick thing on CEO pay. According to the Wall Street Journal, this just came out. The median pay package for chief executives of the major U.S. companies reached $14.7 million in 2021, setting a six-straight annual record. Uh, so that's six-straight annual record of increased pay for corporate CEOs. Total compensation uh, for these CEOs rose by at least 12% for most executives. And most companies, this is the other part, recorded annual shareholder returns of nearly 30%. And so that's why I think you're hearing and seeing a lot of workers saying that they want better wages, they want improved uh, working conditions, because it's not like these are companies that are struggling to pay the bills. These are companies that are succeeding remarkably well, and capitalism is working very well for them. All right, on to um, a sad topic. We have now lost just shy of 1 million people in America to COVID. So to put that in context, that's two Atlantas, um, or it's the equivalent of losing everyone in the entire state of Delaware, which is where Joe Biden is from. Uh, we're still averaging, I think, around 300 deaths a day from COVID. Hospitalizations are on the rise again. Uh, we all know that folks 65 and older are especially vulnerable to COVID. Um, and then obviously people who have pre-existing conditions. Now, like you, I, I have been out and about. Um, I notice that I rarely wear a mask these days. You know, I think we've even moved past the point of local and state governments actively promoting COVID tests, COVID vaccines, COVID boosters. Um, in fact, only half of people who got the first vaccine have also gotten the booster. So why is this problematic? Because, and this is really upsetting to see, a high percentage, around 40% in some states, of folks who were vaccinated have died, they have gone on to die from COVID. 
Now, again, this is especially problematic in older populations. Uh, but you remember in the early days of the pandemic, like once we got the vaccines, vaccine save lives was the mantra. If you get uh, if you get the vaccine, the chance of you dying is incredibly low. Uh, but that's not always the case for folks who are, again, in the older vulnerable population. What some re researchers are saying is that we're going to see something called the viral underclass. So these are folks who have limited financial means, who may not have insurance. Um, they don't have access to like high quality masks. You know, think of the difference between a true N95 mask and a cloth mask. Um, so if they can't get vaccines and boosters and tests for free, they may not be able to afford them. And so they are at a greater risk of getting COVID than a person who does have insurance, who has a primary care doctor, who can go get those antiviral meds uh, the moment they feel sick. Uh, these are also folks who are probably, you know, working jobs that they can work remote. Um, so, you know, God forbid we have another big wave of deaths this fall or winter. I hope not. Uh, by the way, only 19% of people polled uh, by Pew Research say that coronavirus is a very big problem in this country. So it's gone down drastically from where this was, obviously, at the beginning of 2020. Um, you know, it's just a, it's a sad thing. And so I hope that, again, we don't have a, a drastic uh, wave in the fall or winter. I do think folks are over kind of government regulation of COVID. Um, so even if we do have one, I think if local and state governments try to push back and do, um, you know, certain mandates, it will not go over well. Um, but we'll see what ends up happening. All right, on to the favorite part of the show, party poopers and party starters. I got to start with the poopers. Turn out the lights. The party's over. The party is over. Close the gates. What? All right, party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. <laughs> I continue, and I know I shouldn't, but I continue to be mystified by just how much Republicans are willing to shapeshift and say one thing privately and another thing publicly as it relates to Trump and the January 6th attacks on the Capitol. So there was a tape about a week or so ago about Kevin McCarthy, who's the minority leader of the House, and he'll probably become the majority leader in January because I do think Republicans are going to take back. Uh, the House. So, you know, he said some things privately about Trump. And then once they came out public, he, you know, denied it or, you know, tried to say it was no big deal. Uh, this week, it's Lindsey Graham. So take a listen to this audio clip. It sounds like he's at an event. So you'll hear some background noise. He's talking to Jonathan Mart, uh, a White House reporter. Keeping with the former president's influence on the party. New audio tapes, we want to play you now. Another high-profile Republican in Congress speaking away from the public on January 6th about his own personal beliefs involving the former president and his behavior on that day, January 6th. This time, Senator Lindsey Graham. Like similar tapes that we broadcast, they come from the reporting of two New York Times reporters and CNN political analysts, Alex Burns and Jonathan Martin. 
and their new book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. They join me now. So Jonathan, you interviewed Senator Graham on January 6th after right. the Capitol had been attacked, and I want to just play some of the audio of that interview. We'll actually come out of this thing stronger. Moments like this reset. It'll take a while. People have calmed down. People are, I don't want to be associated with that. This is a group within a group. And what this does, it will be a rallying effect for a while. The country says we're better than this. And Biden will help that, right? Yeah, totally. He'll be a, maybe the best person to have, right? I mean, how bad can you get it with Joe Biden? If, if you had trouble hearing that, here's what he said, and I quote, uh, moments like this reset. People will calm down. People will say, I don't want to be associated with that. This is a group within a group. What this does, there will be a rallying effect for a while, and the country will say, we're better than this. Uh, he goes on to say that Joe Biden is, you know, basically the type of voice that we need. Um, and then in another clip about Trump, he said he plays the TV game and it went too far. Uh, but when Graham was asked about this on Fox News, you know, he backtracked and he said Joe Biden is, has been an awful president. And, you know, it's like, I, I don't know. It's like, so it's like a game or something. It's like one day you, they say this, uh, but the moment the light is shone on them, they're like, oh, no, I didn't say that. I don't believe that. Um, and again, this type of stuff just leads to an erosion of trust in American institutions and in our politicians because the lie is so blatant and obvious. Uh, if this were a kid, you know, imagine like you're being a little kid and your mom catches you in a lie, right? Like that's what this is. And no matter what you say, you know that your mom knows you are lying. Uh, and we know that they know that this is ridiculous. Um, and so they will continue to be my party poopers because this is just a drip, drip, drip that this comes out. Uh, and the other party pooper I'm going to mention are these reporters who have held on to this type of stuff for a year now. And they're doing it to sell books, to get deals. Uh, this, this was recorded Jan in early January of 2021. And we're now in May of 2022, and we're just hearing about this clip. And there are a number of other clips like this. And so the reporters who are more interested in profiting off of reporting on January 6th are also party poopers. Let's get it started in here. What's rule number one? Party. All right. And now for the party starters, Keith, I think you will appreciate this. And by appreciate, I mean, it's probably going to piss you off. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Hispanic voters, the Democratic Party wants you. Uh, the DNC is launching a seven figure media campaign in English and Spanish to get Hispanic votes. 
Ads are going up in Georgia, of course, Texas, Florida, Nevada, Wisconsin, uh, Arizona, North Carolina, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. These are all swing states. These are states that um, are a little purple-ish, um, depending on what's happening. So in the 2020 election, Hispanics voted for more Republicans uh, than they did in the previous years. Uh, and I keep telling my Republican friends to stop assuming that Latinos automatically vote Democrats. And even we have this conversation about dreamers, and they assume that the dreamers, if they get uh, they get citizenship, that they're going to vote for Democrats. I'm like, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. The only folks who are automatically voting Democrats are black people, at least for now. So <laughs> this campaign is a big deal because stuff like this usually only happens in presidential years, but Democrats are now going to do it for the midterms, which I think is smart. Um, I, I will say this. I hope that they are using Hispanic-owned firms uh, to make these ad buys, and I hope that they are actually placing these ads in Hispanic-owned media outlets. So, And this would be the case for if this were uh, for Black folks, if this were for Asian folks. But if you're doing outreach to a particular minority group, please have the folks of that minority group actually able to profit from that outreach. So we'll check back in November and December to see if this seven-figure marketing effort works. I'm not a betting person, but I don't think it will. Um, but we'll see. All right, y'all, that is today's show. Um, I didn't mention this before, but I want to say May is Mental Health Awareness Month. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, uh, please go talk to someone, go see someone. Uh, you are not alone. I'll put in the show notes some information and resources for you to check out. I know the pandemic has been really stressful on folks. Uh, this is just a stressful time in general. And so I just want to uplift that and make sure that folks are aware that this is Mental Health Awareness Month and there are resources available to you. Um, as always, thank you for tuning in and listening. Don't forget to go vote. The last day to vote in the primary is May 24th. Bring a friend, bring a neighbor. Make sure you go vote. Check out the um, the folks who were on the ballot. Try to pay as much attention as you can to the ballot questions as well. So you've got candidates and you've got ballot questions. All right, that's it. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next week, we'll see you on Where to Party At.